0: This is Top Landing Gear. Hello and welcome to Top Landing Gear Full Flaps and to part two of our full length interview with an author who's written some of the most dramatic factual accounts of events in aviation history that you'll ever read.
1: Yes, we were delighted to have been joined by Roland White, one of this country's finest aviation historians and writers author of Stormfront, Into the Black, Phoenix Squadron, and Jez's favorite book of all time, Vulcan 607. Now we were talking to Roland about his brand new book, Harriet 809, which we loved. Uh, And one of my other favorite historians, James Holland, has actually written a review on the back of this book, which I'm gonna read to you now. It says, Harriet 809, is a sizzling page-turner. Not only does it have some of the best aerial action sequences I've read, it also offers a fascinating and vivid window on the world of 1982. It's an overused term, but this really does read like the best kind of thriller, his best book yet.
2: Actually, James, (laughs) I love trying to bring to life the story of... The, the Argentine side of the yeah. story of... did
3: did you did you talk to Argentinian pilots
2: I was very I, I didn't and I was very very lucky uh, in that and again this is something I couldn't have done uh, 10 years ago very very lucky uh, uh for two reasons one is that um lots and lots of argentine argentine pilots like british pilots um have uh, been interviewed by national newspapers and magazines and have have told their story um in you know really compelling detail uh and it was a question of sort of marrying their stories with um the the story the, the british side of the, the those encounters um but but more importantly um google translate has also been invented <laughs> <laughs> and so I could I could actually read what they were saying and, and know that I knew enough about what was being said to understand uh, where Google Translate had really failed to understand uh, sort of technical language, um, and could using some you know very good secondary sources like um, Santiago Rivas's brilliant brilliant Argentine uh, aviation historian book Wings of the Malvinas. Uh, make sense sometimes of the uh, the nonsense that you you can occasionally get from from google translate but but it 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 was just a gold mine realizing that you had these incredibly vivid first-hand personal accounts from those um those argentine pilots which again had never really been harvested and did they
3: generally match up with the stories you were hearing from the brit side
2: yeah yeah i mean uh, very much so um I mean some you know even just talking to the Brits you you, you get uh, you know, people remember things differently and um, I mean in Vulcan 607 you know Martin Withers and Bob Tuxford have a you know very very different recollection of the final refueling and and they do to this day um, and I had to try to find a a, a path through that difference of opinion um, that they were—I mean, they're also good friends—but uh, but through that difference of opinion, that they were both sort of comfortable and happy to subscribe to. So, I mean, it, it wasn't just a question of trying to marry British and uh, an American or British and Argentinian stories. It was—it it, was—it was just the way that memory plays tricks, and you're always trying to construct uh, what you feel is the most accurate um, uh, uh, kind of assembly of all the different moving parts that you can, um, and then obviously try and make sure that it feels, uh, you know, page-turningly exciting as well, if possible. <laughs> we'll certainly achieve that, I think.
0: Yeah. Um, you, you and Jez were talking about how good the British are at making things happen when they really need to. Mm. But, I, I mean, I was just staggered in the early stages of the book at how unprepared... We seem to be, yet again, I mean, obviously, you know, we've all read Vulcan 607, and that story is amazing, how they're having to give it, convert old ashtrays that have been, you know, the refueling probes, and et etc. And I see similar signs, again, with the, you know, the lack of aircraft, a lack of pilots. I mean, again, there are echoes of the Battle of Britain. Were yeah. you as kind of dismayed as I was reading this at how really unready and unprepared uh, Britain was to go to war i'm not not really I sort of took a um
2: a, a very different um, uh, view in the end uh, the first being that it was abundantly clear by the end of this that um, Britain was one of only two countries in the world that could conceivably uh, have mounted an operation to retake occupied um and uh, uh, reinforced islands, defended islands, 8,000 miles from home. I mean, when you think that that's the distance from London to uh, Western China, you you realise that the staggering um, distances involved and the sort of supply chain logistics that, I mean, only Britain and America could conceivably have done
0: that. Well, the Americans Um, didn't think we stood a chance.
2: No, no, no. I mean, they they, they really didn't. Um, And... um, and you know, I think that there were, um, you know, there was some doubt uh, in um, in in MOD circles, mm-hmm. uh, in some MOD circles, about you know whether we could or not. But the the other thing um, that that um, I suppose uh, led me to that conclusion um, that um, actually uh, we did rather well, rather than being caught with our pants down was that you know you have to make a decision uh, when you're uh, um, structuring um, and uh, paying for and, and putting together your armed forces what they're for. Mm. Um, and we had made the decision that the job of Britain's armed forces as we withdrew from uh, empire, withdrew from east of Suez, was to play their part uh, in a European war fought by NATO against the Warsaw Pact. And so... We became, certainly from a naval point of view, in service of that, experts in uh, anti-submarine warfare. Um, And the role of Invincible and the subsequent ships in that class, Illustrious and Ark Royal, was supposed to be to make our contribution to a new Battle of the Atlantic uh, as the sort of lead anti-submarine component of that while the Americans had their strike carriers. and so, when the Falklands were invaded, and I've mentioned, I think there's a, there might even be an epigraph in, um, I think there is actually in, uh, in Harry 809 from uh, Dennis Healy saying, you know, when, yes. when the decision was made not to rebuild or not to to uh, build a new generation of uh, conventional carriers to replace Ark Royal, uh, the one scenario that nobody ever put in <laughs> front of me. Uh, to, to argue that they were necessary, um, in a because the RAF simply couldn't do anything in this scenario, was an invasion of the Falkland Islands. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the, 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 if Healy is to, to, um, to be believed and, you know, I, I, I'll take it at face value given it's only an epigraph. Um, that that was never a reason for you. You weren't going to configure your whole armed forces around the possibility that you might have to um, uh, defend uh, or, or retake the Falkland Islands. Certainly, there were contingency plans. Um, you know, there are there's stacks of them, and they changed shape, uh, and they were quite interesting to read. Um, I think they're called um, uh, uh, joint theater plans, um, and they are you know. We had them uh, around the Falklands, around um, Rhodesia, Hong Kong. You know, that anywhere where there is British interest, interest. Uh, there's a joint theatre plan uh, in place, uh, which sort of details the kinds of forces, the kinds of um, operation that might be mounted in response to you know varying degrees of, of threat, um, and. Um, You can almost guarantee that the one thing that's not going to happen is anything that resembles the scenario painted in joint theatre plan. I mean, the first thing you want to do when uh, and you reach for that uh, after you know Falklands has been invaded is to tear it up because it just, (laughs) you know, I mean nonsense. Um, It just won't survive uh, real life. Um, Is is the experience I've, I've had kind of looking at these around you know Belize. Or as it was British
3: Honduras Fleet Squadron
2: this Falkland Islands also Vulcan um, Balkan six and seven as well.
3: Um, what do you think the the legacy of the sort of Harrier force in the in the Falklands went on to be? Well, I think it's <coughs> the first thing to say is that I think...
2: Uh,
1: is that COVID you've got there? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's only a small well, dose. Though, it's right. only a small... It's a short COVID, is it? J- James coughs throughout every single podcast. It's I awesome spend treatment. hours taking yeah. it out of the podcast. You've all got used to it now, <laughs> yeah. have you? Not really. No, it's fine. It's equally
4: as <laughs> irritating as it did yeah. with the first time. <laughs> yeah.
2: Okay. <laughs> well, I'm sort of feeling quite safe and yeah. here yeah. in my yeah. man um but uh, uh yeah i mean the, the the first thing uh is that it uh it, the, the the falklands ensured that the harrier became a kind of legendary um kind of aeroplane to the british i mean you know that it had been seen as something of a kind of air show novelty um i think before that you know we loved watching it sort of pirouette and bow and sort of do its thing at air shows but I, i'm not sure that it was taken enormously seriously outside um, uh, the circles of those who knew as a warplane, um, and it was, um, you know, famously sort of described as being incapable of carrying a matchbox from one side of a football <laughs> field to um, to the other. And you know, winning a fighting war um, in sort of very difficult circumstances uh, gave lie to that, and it also also showed that. Um, sort of perhaps underappreciated uh, attributes like uh, extraordinary reliability, um, flexibility um, and um, uh, uh, robustness were as important when it came to winning a war um, as, uh, you know, being really, really fast uh, or being able to fly really high or, or kind of looking pointy. And so, you know, the Harrier <laughs> had unarguable uh, attributes which... Uh, helped us and being vertical takeoff my god that that was critical so it changed its own reputation um it also success in the falklands also ensured the long-term survival of uh british fixed wing carrier flying um and it uh, you know we canceled the sale of invincible to australia um the cuts that john not had proposed to the royal navy um were were reversed the size of the Sea Harrier squadrons was increased from five to uh, to eight. The Sea Harriers themselves became a more capable aeroplane because um, they were given larger fuel tanks, which gave them an extra hour's worth of endurance, um, and twin sidewinder rails, which doubled um, the number of missiles that they carried, as well as chaff and flare um, countermeasures dis- dispensers. So they, they became more capable, even in a very sort of uh, minor upgrade following the war and that their effort was kind of augmented by the crash and we haven't talked about this the sort of crash development of the uh, early airborne early warning seeking which is again mm-hmm. an amazing story to mm-hmm. have essentially built a new early warning uh, aeroplane uh, like a sort of mini AWACS um, in six weeks yeah. uh, I mean it's a beggar's belief really mm-hmm. and, but it was done um, and it could provide rather than sort of about uh, 30 seconds warning of Exocet attack, uh, about um, 11 minutes, which was time enough to perhaps vector a Harrier um, into an intercept. But so it ensured the survival of British carrier force. But but it also, um, I think, sowed the seeds of what uh, has become, as I understand it now, an incredibly uh, close um, and effective and, uh, and still much misunderstood uh, joint exercise between the Royal Navy and uh, the Royal Air Force in bringing the f thirty five into service as our new carrier aircraft on the queen elizabeth carriers i mean the the, the commanding officer of six one Seven squadron at the moment um, is is a royal navy officer yeah, yeah. it 's a royal navy pilot i mean that, that sort of feels <laughs> unheard of. If, <laughs> Um, if if we were going to uh, uh, kind of cast our minds back to the sort of inter-service rivalry that existed (laughs) in
3: 1982.
2: uh, It led ultimately, as we saw those sort of pocket carriers in Invincible, Illustrious, Arc Royal, develop from being these sort of specialist anti-submarine carriers into something that as constrained as space aboard them was, resembled uh, uh, strike carriers to a greater degree than they might have done as they embarked air groups of uh, you know, a, a handful of, sea, say, six ha- eight sea harriers, uh, I, I think this might have been the maximum, something like eight sea harriers, and, and eight dedicated uh, RAF um, ground attack, uh, AV-8B, Harrier GR-9s, GR-7s,
3: mm.
2: um, you know, they were enormously capable then as a way of projecting uh, projecting carrier air power. Um, and that really sort of, the, that process began I think in, uh, as a result of the Falklands War and the realisation that that um, there was um, a potential um, sort of utility in those carriers that hadn't been realised and the potential for the RAF and the R the Royal Navy to work together through, first of all, It was called Joint Force 2000, I think, uh, but it became Joint Force Harrier, um, which was this, um, on occasions, uneasy, uh, (laughs) sort of enforced relationship between uh, the Royal Navy and the Air Force, which has, through time uh, and through the fact that, um, I think, Joint Force Harrier saw, at an operational level, pilots working really, really closely together, become, assume more senior roles, has seen... um, the, that F thirty five force becomes something that really is properly joint and and properly owned and uh, defended and I think um, and 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 deemed to be precious by both the RAF and the Royal Navy. I and mean, I spoke to a just to finish that point. I spoke to a former First Sea Lord um, who at the time of the Falklands War was in the Department of Naval Air Warfare, de- helping or certainly instigating the development of that um, seeking airborne early warning. Um, uh, helicopter, who subsequently became first, first Sea Lord. And I, I'm not really looking to kind of um, uh, uh, find arguments or create dissent. Said, you know, so, you know, how do you feel about, um, you know, the, the the fact that these jets on the Queen Elizabeth character, that carriers, are going to be uh, Royal Air Force jets rather than uh, <laughs> Royal Navy jets? He said, I, I don't give a fig about who's <laughs> flying them. I just want carriers with strike jets on them. Um, and, you know, if we're looking at, at um, something that is a national uh, resource a national asset um then he's right you know it yeah. doesn't matter we yeah. just want you know the best pilots flying the best airplanes uh with us with with the best possible training and you know as we speak we i think it's tomorrow it starts doesn't it joint warrior mm. um in the uh, in in the atlantic yeah. with um yeah. a, a task force sort of 20 years in the making built around one of those Queen Elizabeth carriers um, with 617 Squadron on board, um, with U.S. Marine Corps F-35s on board, again speaking to that close relationship that uh, we certainly benefited from during the Falklands War um, with the Americans, um, with um, a commanding officer of that British RAFC Harry Squadron, being a Fleet Air Arm officer. I mean, it's uh, you know, it's it's amazing kind of how far we've come, and yet it doesn't stop people from wanting to uh, get extremely, extremely under the uh, hot under the colour about it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
0: Well, Sharky Ward, yes, uh, springs to mind, <laughs> yeah. doesn't he? I mean, yeah, yeah. Do, Have you spoken to Sharky Ward as part of your research, or did you just? I did. I did. I spoke. I spoke to Sharky. He was um, the commanding officer, of One, Naval Air Squadron. Couple, wasn't yeah. He?
2: So Sharky, uh, I mean, he's, he's you know undoubtedly uh, one of the sort of legendary figures to have emerged from Falklands War. You know, he he has always sort of struck me as a character who, in kind of demeanour and outlook and attitude. Uh, was like those kind of World War Two leaders, like you know, sort yeah. of Douglas Bader or uh, um, Ord Wingate or David Sterling. You know, somebody who, you know, God, you want somebody like that on your side in a war. I yes. mean, you know, whether 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 you they'd make a great sort of peacetime general is another yeah. <laughs> other story. But if you, if you've got to go into battle, you want somebody uh, with um, as hard nosed an attitude uh, as as somebody like Sharkey. Uh, somebody who um, has not one iota of self-doubt about him and he went there wanting a war because he wanted to show just how capable the sea harrier was and and it was a capability that he'd been instrumental um, in in, uh, developing and uh, you know he did exactly that and he couldn't have been uh, a more dynamic uh, or effective leader of 801 squadron um, there but he you know, and, and you know, he was a product of his time as well. You know, he'd lived through um the demise of uh of, of conventional Royal Navy carrier aviation. Um you know, there was an enormous enmity between um, the Royal Navy, between Fleet Air Arm and, and and the Air Force. So I think possibly less noticed by the Air Force because they were the larger party. You know, they didn't realize that somebody was shouting at them, Oh, it's Fleet Air Arm. <laughs> 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 problem. Um, and but um you know the, the fleet air arm having seen themselves sort of denuded and reduced and barely survive into the 80s felt it acutely uh, acutely and um and were, were were not slow to pick up on any kind of perceived um slight um and you know that's it's it's understandable i mean it really really is um But I I think it's, uh, I mean, it was definitely also something felt by one or two of the uh, members of the the RAF um, Harrier squadron that went down um, aboard Atlantic Conveyor. I mean, you know, um, there were uh, um, senior officers um, down there, Royal Navy officers down there, uh, who were really, they were unhelpful. Uh, They didn't want the RAF on their carrier. They wanted it to be... Uh, a fleet air arm um, uh, exercise um and um they they made life hard for them and um, the 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 antipathy that has sort of um, been held sort of ever since and you know it it's it, it it doesn't go away um was not unfounded um and i you know it's a real shame but i've done my very best to to try to present a sort of balanced view in in this uh, and show where um, if uh, somebody uh, uh, had felt that they were hard done by or or, or badly treated, I've explained how and why, but also perhaps tried to explain um, where some of the thinking um, or motivation for that had sort of come from. So it's not been my intention to sort of denigrate or traduce.
3: Anyone? Um, yeah, but really though, which and, is it, RAF or Navy? Which side do you come down on, RAF or Navy? Come on, <laughs> <laughs> don't, uh,
0: don't yes, bite. Do. I do. Don't Absolutely. bite, Roland. <laughs> but <yeah.
3: laughs>
0: but Roland, I was, I was actually, as interesting because uh, also in other Royal Naval books um, about the Falklands, there is real. Um, anger at the amount of money that was spent on the pointless, I'm sort of in inverted commas, yeah, yeah, black yeah, yeah. butt raids uh, by the Vulcan And i, I, I you mention it again in this book as if it were a really key part of the Falklands War, the, the, the black yeah. butt raids. And I just wondered at all if your if your mind might have been changed about the value of those uh, because of the the animosity I mean, towards everything that the RAF no, did. No, not really. I no. mean,
2: uh, you know, I... Uh, the, the, so <laughs> you know this this is this is evidence of just how thin-skinned an author is. I remember when Balkan <laughs> 607 was published and about the sort of fourth or fifth review on Amazon was from a from a woman uh, who, uh, who remains anonymous, I and mean, she's an Amazon reviewer, said, oh, more RAF, PR, they've got the most effective PR <laughs> machine banging the drum, and they never even hit the runway. And I thought, oh, I'll show you, I'll write a whole book about the fleet. There. I'll show you I'm neither RAF nor Navy. But, uh, but, but you know, I have enormous respect and, and admiration for, for them both. Um, and, um, and, you know, it sort of feels pitiful that, that I might have written a whole book because I wanted to sort of show her and she doesn't even know.
0: <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, well, if you're listening, um, madam.
2: Um, yeah, I, I mean, yeah. I, I don't, I, I still feel uh, as as strongly as I did um, at the time that I wrote Vulcan sex at 607 that it was absolutely um, a useful exercise, not only uh, because... Essentially, I mean, all the complaints made by, uh, you know, um, Sharky Ward uh, is, um, you know, explicit in making them and, uh, you know, continuously about Black Buck and in some of the other sort of uh, Royal Navy accounts um, about it being a waste of resources, about it uh, wasting a lot of fuel, about it wasting a lot of bombs. They seem to be completely baseless because... You know, it was fuel delivered, uh, you know, and we could have had as much of it as we wanted by the Americans to Ascension. Um, the bombs were carried out from the UK to Ascension, and every 21 bombs that were carried on a on a Vulcan um, from Ascension down to the Falklands were 21 bombs that weren't depleting um, stocks that were a finite resource. Uh, down in the South Atlantic, um, from um, the the armories on board Hermes Invincible and on the uh, Royal Fleet Auxiliary store ships. So, w- why they're complaining about something that is extra, rather than something that is, uh, r- rather than the sort of implication that's somehow detracting from what they were doing, seems sort of silly. And the other mm. thing, I mean, that, that you know some have argued that they didn't they didn't hit the runway i have seen the runway and i've seen a photograph of the patch that uh the tarmac patch that was that was made over the crater that was was um, formed in the runway um you know it, it was possible uh, if you were a, a brave and skilled pilot to perhaps to push yourself over to one side of the runway and take off there and certainly the hercules uh, reinforcements flights were flying off the grass and so you know it, it by no means completely put the uh, airfield out of action but it did mean i think that there was simply no possibility of of them ever seriously uh, contemplating the idea of operating fast jets from stanley runway mm. again and um, even as a a place to land and refuel after a raid uh, or in extremis. Um, that was simply not an op-, op not a possibility after um after black buck um but the second thing is that and, and i know this from having read the argentinian accounts some of which are in the uh the, the british national archives based on a series of interviews done by jeffrey ethel uh and alfred price with argentinian um pilots immediately after the war um and they're very very clear uh the the, the The commander of the Mirar Squadron, the fighter squadron, says, you know, after Black Buck, we didn't know what the British were capable of doing or what their intentions were Mm. with respect to the Vulcans. And we had no choice but to assume that mainland bases of Buenos Aires might be in their sights. We had to provide some kind of defense of um, the Argentinian mainland. And so... On, by the end of the day on May the first, having lost two mirages to Sharky Ward's um, squadron, um, and uh, and uh, uh, having seen uh, what the uh, the Vulcans uh, might be capable of doing, they withdrew from the from the the fight. The, the mirages, the the, the elite um, Argentinian fighter squadron, as opposed to the daggers which were used for attack missions, just didn't really take part again. And so um, that was a free that was then a free ride for the uh, for the Sea Harrys in terms of meeting uh, meeting fighters. You know that they didn't know that, of course, but the reality was they were not coming up against fighter escorts uh, because the decision was taken uh, not to, to hazard them uh, again against the Sea Harrys So, you know, y- 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 you could argue yeah it's the, the the they got bloody nose from the Harris and never came back but you know it's always a kind of uh, it's an iterative uh thing a decision made uh uh to withdraw those mirages is going to be made up of a number of different elements different things feed into that uh the decision made is is a result of weighing up all those various considerations and and to, to sort of I know, I, I argue because you would prefer to have done it all on your own and take all the credit and the kudos for it. That, as a result, it was unwelcome and unhelpful. Doesn't really stack up. I mean, I do understand why those arguments are made, where they come from, and undoubtedly they're heartfelt, but I just don't subscribe to them. Mm-hmm. So, uh,
4: do you think the RAF genuinely felt at the end that they had made a, in terms of Blackbuck, made a sizable contribution to the outcome of that conflict?
2: Uh, look, down, the, the RAF made an extraordinary uh, contribution to the outcome of that conflict. Um, and I think the problem for them, in a way, um, is that uh, the most visible and conspicuous uh, way in which they contributed to the conflict was through Black Buck. And so Black Buck has come to be sort of almost emblematic of the RAF contribution to the conflict. And while uh, it was, as I've just argued, I think, uh, helpful and welcome, um, I'm not sure it was actually the most critical part or the most useful part of the RAF's contribution. The logistics undoubtedly was absolutely vital. I mean, they were, they were the ones who flew down uh, the, the SATCOM uh, equipment borrowed from Delta Force to the task force, that it was RAF Hercules that that um, did that. It was RAF Hercules that uh, flew down and dropped the Stinger missiles again, borrowed from uh, from from Delta Force. It was RAF Her- it was RAF Hercules that um, uh, were uh, supporting the effort in Chile um sometimes sort of repainted in uh, Chilean air force yeah. um, colors sort of flying around uh, chile i mean they got some of the spelling wrong um, <laughs> yeah but, uh, <laughs> they, they, they were still there and i've oh, seen yes. and i've got there's a photograph in in vulcan six uh, vulcan six and seven not not that one in harrier 809 there's a photograph which i i just never thought i was ever going to track down um and did so i mean with <laughs> sort of seconds to spare before the book went to print uh Taken out of the uh, out of the the cabin of a VC-10 taking off uh, from Easter Island uh, in Chile, uh, of two uh, hercs on the ground there at Easter Island. One of them is Chilean, and the other is an RAF Hercules. And I, I genuinely didn't think I was ever going to come across <laughs> photographic evidence of the RAF in Chile um, during the Falklands War, but it's in the book. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know the the, the the intelligence gathered by the the, the Nimrod R1 um, you know, again um, was a really useful contribution. The uh, the, the the radar, or the, rather the, the satcom relay um, uh, that was set up from Santiago uh, to northward, um, and ultimately from Santiago direct to the task force as well. Um, which was providing early early warning of air attack uh, um, for the task force. And that was um, no, what was the um, I can't remember the code word for that now, um, but it's in the, it's in the book. Um, it might come to me. Um, that was uh, an operation set up by the RAF. So a lot of the ways in which they contributed. Um, were not particularly conspicuous. They were they were playing a vital supporting role, though, without which I don't think we could have continued to fight the war in the way that we did, and without which we might have seen um, more significant damage done to the task force by some of those air attacks, because there wouldn't have been the same amount of time to um, prepare the uh, to the the, the, the the ships and their disposition their dispositions um, in, in readiness for those attacks. And certainly by the, the day of the last Exocet um, missile attack on the 30th of May, um, all of those elements came together in a way that did defeat that Exocet attack. Um, and, um, you know, that, you know, as was written in a, uh, a report after the war uh, into. um what happened on the 30th May and that final Exocet attack and the conclusion they came to was, you know, look, um, we might not know quite where that Exocet, Exocet landed, but the countermeasures we put in place, the warning that we provided ourselves um, about uh uh the the incoming raid um through uh intelligence coming from the mainland all contributed to us ensuring that we were not hit by an exoset on the 30th of may and whether you've got passive or active defenses against an Exocet, it doesn't matter providing you 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 beat the exoset and they did that and so even though there were no more land uh, air air launched uh, Exocets, actually in the in the locker for the argentines the british had shown that by the time of that final attack uh, they were able to defeat an exorcet
4: do you think it's a matter of good luck just going back to black buck again yeah. that the falklands weren't invaded a year later when we
2: had <laughs> um, yeah i mean we, we wouldn't have had um we wouldn't have had black buck uh, certainly um <laughs> although you know Conceivably, then. Um, I mean, there, there was a. Oh, I don't think actually I have mentioned this in the book because I'm saving it up for the book that follows. Which is, oh,
1: hello, uh, is, this down, is, is this Dan Buster
2: six one seven? This is Dan Buster six one seven. So th- oh. there's a a wonderful story which was shared by with me by a test pilot called uh, Russ Pitt. And Russ, I came across when I was writing Stormfront because he was Strike Master pilot in in Oman and um and and you know that. That's another story. And I've written it. It's in Stormfront. And it's brilliant. Um, but uh, Russ said to me after, uh, after I've written Stormfront, you know, there's a whole lot of other stuff which I got up to, uh, you know, like flying MiGs um, during the Cold War, which uh, um, uh, it, it might be quite interesting. Do you know, do you want to talk about it? He's like, yeah. Um, and he was a test pilot um, at Boscombe Down in, the, uh, in 1982. Um, and after the war, actually, he, he test flew the Picara, um, which rather like your Puma James came back, um, as the <laughs> bounty from, uh, from <laughs> the Falklands. Um, but in 1982, he was uh, test flying, um, tornado, um, and, uh, he proposed when there were all sorts of, uh, quite, uh, ingenious and, and, uh, novel proposals being made to use, a. Uh, a fatigue-life-expired, almost fatigue-life-expired tornado prototype, um, which, um, you know, w- really was not going to be much use to anyone uh, but a museum or for spares, um, to mount a one-way uh, mission um, to the Falklands um, uh, supported by buccaneer tankers. And they did a whole load of um, tanking trials uh, using buccaneers, um from Honington and uh, tornadoes from Boscombe Down, to make sure that 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 that, um, that was a capability that they had. He was then going to uh, uh, he proposed doing a low level um, uh, ingress towards mainland target in Argentina, specifically the uh, runway at Rio Grande, where the um, the uh, Super etondas were operating from, 500 miles at low level um, to defeat the radars. Uh, screaming in low uh, in what might have been quite an effective uh runway attack possibly using jp-233 which was in its infancy at the time which was specifically designed for a runway attack mm-hmm. before the airfield had time to prepare their uh their their defenses scream over the chilean border um and eject and just throw away the jet um, <laughs> that that was uh that was his proposal um you well, know if this is going to be useless junk in uh in a month's time we might as well throw it away with some style <laughs> um, but Poor old so. pilot. <laughs> ah, ah. So that was Russ's idea. Um, have you
1: have you pho- flown a Harrier, Roland? Uh, no, I on, never like, have,
2: sadly. Uh, i got a, you know, if, if
3: only.
1: It's some of the, uh, just some of the descriptions of the flying in the cockpit. I don't know. You've flown a Harrier. I've
3: flown in a Harrier.
1: But yeah. I do, I, I, for no, me, it's, I mean, it's, it's uh, it, incredible. It, does, it, it wraps
3: up, it up. You were there in the seat when, when I read the book, so yeah. well done oh, there. thank, Thanks,
2: James. I mean, I, I, I've i never flown a Harrier, but given that viffing uh, yeah. was not actually um, a feature in the air combat, um, I, I have been lucky enough to fly in a Hunter and a Buccaneer. Oh. Um, oh, and, exactly. uh, I've, I've had sort of some uh, kind of physical experience of, of what twisting and turning in a fast jet yeah. feels no, like. I, I, I
3: actually was lucky enough to, to viff in this Harrier. Oh. And it oh, is the God, most wow. unbelievable experience you ever gonna because you're at, <laughs> you know, you're up at airliner heights, you're at twenty five thousand feet, and all of a sudden it's like someone just slams the brakes on. Yeah. And it, it yeah. just shouldn't work. Not, everything in your brain is telling you this isn't possible. Uh, because it, there's nothing to break again. Yeah, there's nothing yeah. to break again, and it just stops in midair. It's wow. unbelievable, wow. and it's still flying, <laughs> and you're still flying, <laughs> and everything, and your everything in your senses as a pilot is going no 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 no. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I don't know yeah. if you've seen. There's some amazing pictures that Ian Black, uh, yes. former, you know, Lightning Pilot, mm-hmm. um, Mirage Pilot, Tornado Pilot, has been posting of the very last flight of a two-seat Navy T4, um, where they went up and uh, and and rotated the novels with the gear down, kind of up yeah. up high at twenty thousand feet, and, and it just looks all wrong. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, 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 it, it's sort of yeah. It's it's it is an it's a. It's an aeroplane which made something really extraordinary work in a yeah. way that nobody else has has until F thirty five successfully done so. Yeah. Um, and you know, the, you know, certainly there are you know haters, naysayers shouting that F thirty five may still um, have a case to argue, um, but um, you know. Nobody else made uh, a vertical takeoff warplane a success. You know the Russians tried, and and when India was looking for something to fly off its uh, its aircraft carrier's replacement for its old Seahawks, yeah. they they talked to the Russians about getting Yak thirty eight and Sergei Gorshkov, who was a um, much I mean, much, um, uh, uh, I mean he, he made the modern Soviet Navy. Um, it was just said to them. You know, if I were you, I'd buy the Sea Harrier. Um, <laughs> and I'm sure if, if he had the option, he'd have bought the Sea Harrier himself. I mean, yeah. you know, it, it, it was um, it was very very good at what it did. Yeah. Um, it was just never going to be good at what it hadn't been designed to do.
4: Right. Yeah. We take yeah. a lot. We take a lot of pride in the in the Harrier because it was, of course, built five minutes down the road from where we all live at Dunsfold. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. the history. Yeah, sadly, maybe not much longer there, but, um, you know, it's, it's a great yeah. thing that it was built so locally and, uh, oh,
2: there's a bit, fantastic. Of, yeah, a bit yeah. of history um, around it. At the, at the top gear test track.
0: Yeah. 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 And, and we've sort Jeremy... of adopted that name slightly, but, um, I have to say, Roland, uh, you've, you've, paid great tribute to, to a wonderful aircraft with with harrier 809 i i feel our time is probably up with you which is which is a great shame because we've barely scratched the surface of this wonderful book harrier 809 but thank you so much for writing it because Not, it is full of candy. the most incredible detail it, it's it's fascinating and and so great to talk to you thank you
2: Oh, that's so kind of you um, you know I sort of slightly feel like I've said so much that nobody's going to buy the book now but but and, but, but Roy we never did talk about the air combat honestly that, the air combat's
1: brilliant <laughs> <laughs> right, right there
2: full of whooshes and bangs and it, brrr, you'll best. love it. <laughs> it
0: it
3: is
2: great uh, yeah, I you I, know I wanted to try and write a, a real
1: life thriller and yeah. uh, you know I, I hope it sort of hits the spot oh totally it's no
0: brilliant. it's brilliant
1: absolutely brilliant
0: Rodan, thank you so much. And best of luck with this book and best of luck with the next one. Can we have some advanced copies of that one too? Of <laughs> course. don't
2: expect them anytime soon. Um, yeah. and good, I mean, good luck with the podcast. I've thoroughly enjoyed um, talking to you all and i um, thanks for the opportunity to talk about the book.
0: Thank you. Thanks, Rodden.
1: That was Roland White. What a lovely man. One of this country's finest aviation historians and writers. Harrier 809 is out right now on hardback ebook and audiobook. Go check it out. You will not be disappointed. Top Landing Gear will be back next week with a special on the 1969 Daily Mail Air Race. Fantastic story. We'll be talking Phantoms, Harriers, and we'll be talking to the pilot of the VC-10. See you next week.